What are you uh, waiting for right now in your life? I want you to think about that. What are you waiting for? Could be just you're waiting for lunch, waiting for fried chicken after this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wrong day, yeah. Um, here's another question. What's worth waiting for? What's worth waiting for in your life? You, you familiar with that phrase? You know, something worth waiting for? Maybe it's a, a vacation or a raise, a child, a spouse, someone you haven't met yet that could become one, a movie that you wanna see that's coming out. Sometimes it can be, it can be kind of fun, actually. It can be kind of energizing to know something that you're waiting for that's good is coming up. It, it, it can almost be as good as experiencing the actual thing. Have you ever experienced that where you're like, you're so excited that you're gonna go on this trip, you're gonna see this person, that it, that it makes life in the present just a little bit better. It shines a little bit brighter. You let things roll off your back a little more easily. Uh, you don't need as much sleep just because you're so excited and anticipating that this thing is coming. It could be really exciting. Not always though. And and it really depends on what you're waiting for. And in the tradition of the Christian faith, it's often about waiting. I mean, as we, th we think about this, so over 2,000 years ago, possibly, possibly another 2,000 or so years before that, this book was not yet a book, and it was being circulated through this group of people, this small tribe of people that would later become known as the Israelites and then the Jews. This idea that there was something that went wrong in a beautiful, perfect garden, and that there was a promise that was given, a whisper that one day this person would show up, this offspring of the first woman would show up and would begin to make things right. And then it was 2,000 years of waiting for that. And some people waited well and some people didn't. And then the Messiah comes, Jesus. Nobody is aware that he is the Messiah except for a handful of people, some shepherds, some wise men, uh, some, some relatives. And then he bursts onto the scene in his 30th year of life, healing people, driving out sickness, driving out demons, driving out everything that was wrong about the world and replacing it with peace and hope and life. And then just as quickly as he appeared on the scene, he was gone. Just a couple of years. And then the waiting continued. It, re it, it resumed. And out of that, Christianity was born. And for 2,000 years, we have a tradition of 2,000 years of what does it mean to wait? To wait in, in hope, to wait in expectancy. And there's this word that, that came about uh, in, in frequent use in this Christian tradition 
in the United States, and it comes from the King James Version of the Bible, and it's the word to tarry. Anybody familiar with that word, tarry? If you grew up in the church, if you had grandmas and things like that, they probably use that word, tarry. Old folks use that word. And I couldn't help but think about that as I was thinking about this, this tradition of waiting in, in Christianity and this, this word that feels really old and, and feels really kind of trustworthy to tarry, to, to wait. And, and I began to think like, what? Does tarry just mean wait? Hey, don't, don't, don't tarry too long, Lord. Come quickly. And, and as I did a little bit of research into this word, uh, this old English word, um, two definitions emerged from it. So one was like just to drag your feet and arrive somewhere late, right? Don't tarry too long. Like get there on time, you know, manage your time well, essentially. And that's used sometimes in the scriptures. And it's used sometimes asking, pleading with God not to do that, not to be late. But there's another definition of the word tarry, and it, it means that it takes longer than you would like it to or want it to or hope that it would, but it still comes on time. It comes in the fulfillment of time. And I started to think about my own life and, and, and how many times that's been true in my life where I thought something in my life was tarrying, it was, it was late, it should have already come, it should already be here in my life, but it wasn't. But in hindsight, coming into my 40th year this year and looking back, I can see so many of these, these times and these situations in which it, it wasn't that at all. It wasn't the Terry in the sense of being late. It, was, it wasn't time. I wasn't ready to receive those things. Even if I were to have received them, I wouldn't have known what to do with them. I, I actually, I thought, I haven't thought about this in years, but I thought about the first time I felt called to ministry, to be a pastor. And I was 15. I was 15 years old under a mango tree full of tarantulas in Haiti. That's where I was. And, and I don't even remember, there, I think there was somebody there who, who he, I think it was a missionary in, in Haiti, and he, and he asked this youth group that I was in that was here, does anybody feel called to ministry? It was the middle of the day. We were under the shade tree of this, of this big, huge mango tree with lizards and, and tarantulas and stuff, and I felt something deep in my heart. I was like, I think I do. And I went up, and I got prayer, and I talked to my youth leaders, and they really didn't know what to do. They didn't really know what to tell me. They were just like, well, yeah, you know, it could be, or God could just be like testing you or something. I remember that's what, that's what, that's what the main guy, my friend, uh, who was uh, our, an adult leader in our church, said, like, God could just be testing you. I'm like, okay, cool, all right. Well, that's better, because I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't really excited about this. I was kind of scared. And then there was another moment. I was, I was 18. I was in another country. I was in Venezuela in the city of Valencia, and uh, we, were, we were with this youth organization that did missions trips and stuff like that. And, 
and it, it was my turn, and they usually only let like adults do this, but I felt really passionate about it. It was my turn to kind of like testify after this thing that we did. And I got up full of passion in my heart, and I, and, and I had to speak, and then a translator had to translate. And I got up there to talk in front of this group of, 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 of people, and I made no sense at all. <laughs> it just made no sense. I remember trying to articulate this burning passion inside of me, and then hearing the translator say what I, was, what I had just said, and realizing like, as soon as it's my turn to talk again, like I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm already here, so I have to keep going. And then from, from 21 to about 28, I worked in churches and youth ministry and things like that, and had a house church and was part of a house church and um, did ministry kind of part-time. And about nine years ago, I came into this church, Christ City Church, with my wife, and we were pregnant with my first son, Benjamin. And, on the, and we sat there, and I didn't particularly like the church. It wasn't really my style. I'd come from a, from a house church that was birthed out of another house church in, a, in Hickory Hill, and it was all black. I was the whitest person in there. And uh, so this church was really foreign. It felt really foreign from where I'd been for the past several years of my life. And, and yet at the same time, I felt this same thing, this thing that I felt under the mango tree. I felt that again when I was 15. And then on the way out, this woman named Diane Morgan, many of you know her, she did a pastoral residency uh, uh, previous, uh, last year, she finished that, and she's in seminary in Chicago, in Illinois right now. And she stopped me, never met me before, and she said, can I pray for you? Any of you ever been prayed for by Diane Morgan? If you have, you know that things happen when that woman prays for you that she speaks things into existence that aren't currently in existence in your life. And she said, she prayed and she said, God is showing me that you are a man of ambition, but not selfish ambition, but that the things that you have ambition for are going to take a lot longer to come to fruition than you would like them to. I was like, oh, great. And then in July of 2020, our previous directional pastor resigned and I stepped into an interim position in total disarray of, of that time period. And uh, in the summer of 2020, right after all of the, the, the racial protests and unrest and those types of things. And then I waited some more. I waited as an interim pastor, holding the space, trying to see if our church could hold together and become something beautiful, something that I saw a vision for it to become. And less than a year ago, I was hired as the pastor of this church, almost a decade from when I was prayed for. And I'm still waiting. I'm waiting to see what this church will become, 
what the contribution that I have to make will be and what the contribution that each of you, I think about each person that shows up in this building, what will they help to build? What will be healed in their life? What will they find the courage to do that will be different than what they had previously thought possible? Connected, ready for use. That's what it said there. In verse 12, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. What happens soon or what takes a long time is so dependent upon your perspective. It's so dependent upon what you think you should have, when you should have it and what it should look like. And sometimes it's just excruciating to wait on the things that you're focused on. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about there are things that happen like when somebody gives you a present you didn't ask for, you weren't waiting for that. And so you get it and you're like, okay, cool, I got this thing, but you weren't waiting for it, so you weren't paying attention to it. You weren't thinking about where it was and how it was on the way to you. You weren't tracking on uh, UPS or whatever to see how close it was to you. It just showed up. I, I began thinking about where we started this series and we were talking about the relativity of time. Were any of you there for that? And we were talking about the relativity of time. And I was thinking about how true that is in the Christian tradition of waiting. And I was thinking about, was Einstein really like the first guy who started thinking about space and time like that? There's no way. And, and I found this guy who lived roughly 2000 years before Einstein, um, an Epicurean philosopher named Lucretius. He lived in 99 to 55 BCE. And he said this of time, time by itself does not exist. It must not be claimed that anyone can sense time by itself apart from the movement of things. Apart from the movement of things, which, which if, that, if that's true, then that means our sense of time is based on the movements of things that we track that are important to us. You ever, you ever been in that situation? You ever been listening uh, to my sermon or been in school or something and you're like, why won't time move forward? Because I'm focused on this other thing. I'm focused on this thing and I'm tracking the movement of that. Maybe it's the hands of a clock and those are moving so incredibly slow. I'll give you an example in my house um, my family, they're, they're at home right now and they, they, Xavier's been up in the night and they had a bad cold and um, they, they might join us outside later. They're, they're starting to feel better. Um, but Malia, my daughter, she's six and uh, she, she got a free pad of like this carbon copy kind of pad from the dentist. And Malia is, is I, call her, I call her the, uh, the maximum staller or the, and the master staller. Those are the names that I give her because at bedtime, she thinks about everything that she didn't do that is all automatically now, it's the most important thing in the world that has to happen right then. And it's, I'm like, it's 30 minutes past your bedtime. You've got to get to bed. And she's screaming about the stylus for this little pad. Like, I have to find it now. 
And I said, Malia, we will find it in the morning. You brought it into the house. It's in the home. Nothing's gonna happen to it. It'll be there in the morning. You can go to sleep. But for her, time was standing still until she knew where that stylus was, right? And I got her to go to bed and she cried and she said, you don't love me anymore and all these types of things. And in the morning I, I went and I found it in her bag and I gave it to her. Now contrast that with me. I've had 40 years of professional activity of losing things. Like I'm great at losing stuff. And so I lost the keys to the back door. And did I freak out and cry and tell Becky I'm not doing anything else until I find these keys? Which that's what she would have liked me to do probably. No, I, I knew that, that those keys were gonna turn up and, and time continued to move for me uh, just kind of normal. You know, I'm like, they'll turn up and they did. Sure enough, I was, I think I was working on this sermon and I dropped something and I looked down and I saw the keys right there on the ground. My point is that what we pay attention to determines how we see time, which means it affects how we wait for things that are important to us. Am I in your neighborhood right now? Do you, are, you, are you understanding where, where we're going here? Um, here's, here's why this is so important in a tradition of waiting that we all find ourselves in here is what happens when we are unwilling to wait for those good things. That, that's, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking about as I was thinking about this because there are things I am so tired of waiting for. I'm so tired of waiting for our government to pass gun safety laws. I am so tired of that. I'm so tired of hearing the same stories over and over of the same acts of violence committed against black people and women and other minorities. I'm tired of those things. But here's what I know that there there is a way to wait well. Because when we don't wait well, we lose important things. We lose our ability and our capacity to have faith. To have faith that something can be different and it's just because it won't be different right now when we want it to, doesn't mean that we give up our faith that it could be or should be or will be. We grasp at some things in our life before their appointed time. We think, because I've become aware of this thing, because it's so important to me, I shouldn't have to wait, and I'm going to try to push my way through and make something happen that's not ready to happen yet. We do this with, in relationships with our, with our partners, maybe in careers, things like that. We try to force something to happen, and instead we need to let it tarry. We need to let it come at the appropriate time. Because when we become impatient, when we think nothing will change, when we think the same types of things are just gonna repeat over and over and over, we become susceptible to the fear and the hate and the violence and the hopelessness that paints so many stories in our world. Sometimes, I'm focused, I'm so focused on what's not changing 
that I lose hope about this passage of time. I become impatient. I become unable to see the other good things, the other possibilities in front of me because I don't want to wait anymore. It's too uncomfortable to wait. The thing, the thing about this is there is a, a level of discomfort and impatience that can be good. So it's, it's hard even in a sermon to really talk about this without us you know, sharing together in a small circle and talking about these individual things in our life. But the thing is, the way that we can sort of uh, become aware of is our impatience in the waiting for the good things, is it helping or harming the situation and the relationships that we are in, is to see, is to monitor, is to monitor this, are there people able to be in it with us? Are there people able that feel like they can sit with us in our discomfort, in our waiting, in our patience? Or are, are, is our rage like a force field that keeps everyone at bay? Can somebody follow us into that thing we are so passionate about that we are waiting for change and that we want to cultivate and do the things that we can do to help bring about that change and we can invite other people into it? Or is our rage and our impatience pushing others away? It's exemplified in this statement here. She who thinks she leads but has no followers is only taking a walk. Heard that one? Yeah, or, you know, there's, there's the, other, the other proverb that it's like, if you, if you want to go fast, go alone. You know, you can go fast, but where are you going to get to by yourself? If you, if you want to get there, go together. So there is a, there's a way of waiting that pushes people away, that hyper-focuses us on obsessions about things that we want to force to change, that we cannot change ourselves. And then there is another way of waiting in the tradition of Christianity, of, of waiting well. So in verse 16, one of the only times we hear a first person speaking from Jesus in the whole book of Revelation, it says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And then, and then Jesus describes who he is. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And nothing in, in Revelation is just like, oh, that's a cool thing to say there. Let's just put that in there. It's all heavily symbolic and metaphorical. And I find it very interesting that John has these two uh, descriptions of Jesus here. I'm the root and the offspring of David. In the book of Isaiah, the coming Messiah is described as this tender shoot that grows out of a stump from the people, from the lineage of King David. And he describes Jesus here as the same thing, Jesus describing himself and of the bright morning star. Both things, plants growing and the morning coming, those are things you have to do what for? Wait. And as I was thinking about that and, and, and waiting for things and kind of the world that we live in right now, I was thinking about my house. 
And I've been waiting for us to be able to paint our house since we moved in, and it looks rough, people. But my house was built in the 40s, and the parts of the house where the paint has chipped and peeled away, um, it's been gone for quite a while. And I expected fully to touch that wood and for it to be spongy and rotten in those places, but it wasn't. It was hard, and it was pine. And pine is not known to be the hardest of woods. It grows fast, relatively, and it's used to build and frame homes. But if you want to build like a nice piece of furniture or a pew, you're going to use something a lot harder like a, like a hickory or an oak or a poplar, right? Kara Minyard, you're going to use one of those things. But this pine was still really hard. And I asked a guy, I was like, why is this pine so hard? And he, he was like, well, because, you know, this is old growth pine. This was before they started the, the pine farms and figured out ways how to like grow pine trees really fast. And so the pine you get in the store now, the pine they're using right now today has been grown up prematurely, very quickly, and it didn't have time to form its full integrity and to get as hard as the pine that was able to grow up naturally and was able to tarry until the appropriate time that it could be used for strong, sturdy construction. Plants know how to tarry properly. And I think this is the power. This is the power in the tradition of waiting, of waiting for the sun to rise, of waiting for plants to grow, of waiting for someone that you care about to have some self-awareness about the way that they hurt you. As Christians, we wait. Before Abraham left his people for the first time, the father of the Jewish faith, there was an idea in the world, in almost every part of the world that we know of that had recorded any history, any wise men, any sayings, that the world just did this. It was just a cyclical process. It was just life, death, and repeat. It was fatalistic. There was nothing that you could do to change what was going to happen in your life. It was going to be the same as what happened in the people's lives before that, and so on and so forth, and life would do nothing but repeat itself, like a forest does. A forest grows, and it drops trees that grows more trees, and it drops uh, leaves And if you leave a forest alone for thousands of years, it will only produce another forest the exact same way. But when God called Abraham from his people, history and the way people thought about what was possible began to change. There's a historian named Thomas Cahill who wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews, How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels. And he said this about Abraham leaving Ur. Since time is no longer cyclical, but one way and irreversible, personal history is now possible and an individual life 
can have value. This is so important to the idea of waiting. It means that we can wait not just for things to repeat, not just in the hopelessness that yes, that's the way it's gonna happen, that's the way it happened before, that's the way it's always gonna happen. We're not birds that will make the same nest forever and ever for thousands of years. We're not a forest that will produce the same things, but we can actually wait actively with anticipation for new things. But if we don't have the patience, if we don't have the way to invite people in to the story, we will manufacture a future without integrity, without the proper growth. We'll we'll create the soft pine of consumerism at the expense of the environment, of self-righteousness at the expense of relationship of being so quick to formulate our opinions about what's happening in the world and get it out there on social media so we can argue with other people that we fail to come up with the needed and necessary solutions that our world will not survive without. That is our task as waiting Christians. So, What do we do when we wait? We're gonna end on that part. I'm gonna go back to verse 12 here. Jesus again, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Again, if you've been here for parts of these series, some of these words will sound familiar, this series, some of these words will sound familiar to you, but there's this robe that, that people are adorned with, this white, pure robe. But it's, it's washed in the blood of the lamb, which represents Jesus and his, his sacrificial death. And uh, there's times when this is brought up and, and in like Revelations 3, it says like, of the people with these, with these robes, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out their na- the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. And, and what this robe is tied to and, and connected to in the book of Revelation is really one thing. The, 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 the metaphor of the washing of the robe in the blood of the, of the lamb is a testimony. It's a life that testifies to the lordship of the crucified and, and risen slain Jesus, the slain lamb of God who was resurrected, who created and started a new world order. So it sounds, it can sound somewhat like there is some type of particular amount of things like there's a weighing on a scale that God is is trying to weigh your deeds and, and judge you or not judge you. But what John makes clear throughout this passage is what he's begging and pleading with and trying to make plain to the Christians in their time, in his time, is that the world that you see 
is fading as it is. It will not last. The things, the economic securities, the people who seem to have all the power and authority, they're gonna cease to do that. And what you will be left with is what did you risk for the vision of the world to come, to testify with your life, with your words, this world, this way of living that is the risen Christ, the slain lamb, the one who died on the cross, who suffered with us, not brought suffering to us. The one who, instead of picking up the sword to vanquish his enemies, died for his enemies. So in danger of beating a dead horse, this culture and love of guns and of death in our country is anti-Christian. The, the waiting that is necessary to produce the world that we all need is one of following and testifying to the life of Jesus. In fact, waiting for this is almost like waiting that is the opposite of death, which of course is, is life. So back to this word, Terry, as we close here. Terry, the, the fulfillment of time, the fulfillment of what needs to happen when it's supposed to happen. And what do we do with that? We wait well by testifying to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives, and we work to cultivate this world that looks more and more like the New Jerusalem. It is a battle and a competition with cynicism and fatalism. And to instead replace that with hope, with vision of this new city, of this new Jerusalem. There's, there's a lot of issues to talk about, issues like, uh, issues like our stances on abortion and abortion rights, issues on gun and gun rights, issues on, on economic things and stuff like that, that needs to be viewed through the lens of this, this hopeful waiting and anticipation of the new Jerusalem, of the testimony that our lives can lead and live towards this slain lamb and what his ethic, what his kingdom is like. So we end this series where we started it, talking about time. We have a tradition of waiting. We need to wait well. We need to testify with our lives and cultivate the things that we can and bring others along with it and not lose sight, not lose sight of the vision of the world that doesn't look like the world today and testify with our lives to what it could mean that that world could be possible all over and everywhere through the Lordship of Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray and come to the communion table. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people gathered here. Thank you for our city and the things that you are doing and working in us, the visions you are birthing 
in our congregation. Thank you for times of grieving and times of celebration, of praying and mourning and uh, eating and playing together. Amen.